It's a bonus edition of Behind the Idea. My colleague Mike spoke to Matt, a pilot friend of his, about the Boeing 737 MAX crash to get a perspective from inside the cockpit. Matt talked about what he expects from the aircraft manufacturer as far as safety protocols. Kind of what I I hear and the way I think about it is, have you designed the plane in a way that's intuitive to fly, right? Have you designed it in a way that so if something goes wrong, a human being, whether they're a pilot or not, that, that's got some the right level of training on the thing, is, is going to kind of know to go to their, their core responses and, and fix it. Later on, he talks about what he would watch for as a bad sign in the crash investigation. I personally would, if that system was in there and they didn't know about it, yeah, that's a big deal. The intricacy of modern aircrafts is growing, and with that, the importance of proper training and communication to pilots and all parties involved. Does that mean that Boeing got it wrong? Listen in to hear what a pilot thinks on today's Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea, the podcast where we look at ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes successful analysis work. I'm Mike Taylor, and I'm here today with my friend Matt, who is a commercial airline pilot. And together, we're going to talk a little bit more about some of the facts and analytical considerations from the pilot's perspective around the story of Boeing and the recent crashes related to the 737 MAX. So welcome, Matt. It's good to be here. Great. Uh, Matt actually just took me up in a very small plane on a little flight, and uh, we pulled some Gs, and I got a little green. But uh, I was grateful for the experience. It was cool to see how pilots operate planes firsthand. So thanks for that. No problem. And uh, so, okay, I thought I would we'd just start with what's the difference between Boeing and Airbus? Is it kind of like a Mac versus PC thing or from the pilot's perspective? What's the difference? It is kind of like a Mac versus PC thing, I think. I mean, obviously, they, they both serve, serve the same function, but there's a, there has historically been a little different philosophy in how to make the planes. From our perspective, anyway, I think a lot of pilots think Boeing has designed airplanes for pilots to have a whole lot of control, um, and it'll give you warnings and you know ideas. But for the most part, they the pilots are in control of the plane. Airbus has has tried very hard from the get go to design in a lot of safety measures. So since since many of the Issues with with aircraft in the past have been pilot error. Airbus decided to focus on that, and there's a, a lot of safety measures put in place in, in an Airbus that keep you from exceeding whatever tolerances that they come up with. Airbus has a tray table, which is really nice. <laughs> in the cockpit, in the cockpit. Boeing doesn't have a tray table. No, it's kind of a joke because you you ask these guys are flying these these multi million dollar like incredible airplanes what they like about it. they switch from Boeing to Airbus. The guys from Airbus that, that like it now, it's because it's got a little tray table that pulls out, so you can you can put your notes down and write write your little things. It's, it's right. Do you eat off the tray table? Of course, you eat off. Okay. The tray table. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what level of constant attention you need to be paying. I guess 
pretty constant attention. Pretty constant. You can definitely eat. Pretty though, constant attention. But on long flights, you got yeah, to eat. You got to eat. You got to eat. So all, all the crazy technology we tend to focus on silly stuff. So does do you think that plays into at all the... I guess we should specify that you're not certified for the 737. Max. I'm not. You fly I, a different. Plane. I've never flown the seven the seven three uh, of any sort. So not the seven thirty seven Max or any seven thirty seven. Um, I currently fly an Airbus. I have flown a, an MD eighty eight in the past. It was a MD eighty eight ME ninety McDonnell Douglas was acquired by Boeing, so it's a Boeing product. And it's you know, so I've got a kind of an understanding and I've been in all of them. So I haven't been in the cockpit of a Max, but I've been in a lot of seven thirty sevens. Okay. I mean, uh, basically, they're, they're remarkably similar. So, what do you think of what do you think of those planes? They're great. They're good planes. They're uh, the the Airbuses have a a little more I don't know like glass screen you know push button type feel. Uh, the Boeing's you can kind of see some things moving. The ones that I've seen have been you know like a a yoke, so it's it's kind of like a steering wheel. Uh-huh. Whereas Airbus has a little joystick on the side, it's a different means of, of flying. But yeah, they're both they're all great planes. Do you think that there's any? I don't want to say could like could the same thing have happened with an Airbus plane versus a Boeing plane? But how, how do you for when we talk about the crashes of the seven thirty seven Max, you know? It seems like it's still not entirely settled what happened, but yeah, there's they a lot. They haven't released findings. They don't know exactly what happened. There's just been a lot of presumptions. But they, I think, anyway, the the latest is kind of that there was a software issue, and they have some details about how the pilots on one of these crashes kind of were behaving with the aircraft right. shortly before. I was surprised to find it. I didn't realize that it was only, you know, they were only in the air for six minutes, but I guess that's right. the most dangerous times are when you're taking off. Taking off is the hard, yeah, the most dangerous. But I think the question kind of that we're always trying to get at is, you know, how much of this is sort of the manufacturer's responsibility? How much of this is the pilot's responsibility and everyone else who's involved in the whole process? So... I think one thing that would be interesting is to kind of talk us through a little bit the takeoff process and sort of where the where you're interacting with the different software and products and the plane and just how how that works from your point of view. Uh, sure. Okay. So I heard there's a couple of things I I sort of heard and wanted to respond to while you were talking about that. Yeah. One is you know when you look at responsibility kind of what I, I hear and the way I think about it is, have you designed the plane in a way that's intuitive to fly, right? Have you designed it in a way that so if something goes wrong, a human being, whether they're a pilot or not, that, that's got some the right level of training on the thing, is, is going to kind of know to go to their their core responses and, and fix it, uh-huh. right? And like the plane we just flew was a really simple plane, right? It's got a stick in the middle that's connected to all the control surfaces and you're physically moving parts of the plane when you move that stick. These new these new planes, these big airlines that we fly now, they've been designed with more and more safety measures and more and more systems. And they're, they're super, super complex now. To some extent, what they've done is made them easier to fly so that, that as you go along, like it's all a lot of automation. So I'm flying along and once we're in cruise, I'm just monitoring systems. The airplanes, the airplanes are doing the things that I set it up to do on the ground. And I make changes along the way. But for the most part, it's on a course that I set it on. 
And as long as is air traffic control or weather or something else doesn't intervene, it's just going to do exactly what I told it to do. And I watch it just to make sure nothing goes wrong. And if something goes wrong, I take over. Mm-hmm. If something were to go wrong, like I want the plane to be designed so that it's easy to figure out what happened and then easy to, to correct that problem or as easy as possible to correct that problem. Yeah. And if it gets confusing and most of the time, most of the crashes I've seen is, is something either was a, a really bad error or something broke. But oftentimes lately, the ones we've seen have been things where the plane does something strange and the pilots don't know exactly how to, what's going on. So it takes a, a period of time for them to adapt to whatever the issue is. And that's the dangerous time because they don't know what to do yet. They don't know what the problem is. So they don't necessarily know how to solve it. Most of the time, you've got plenty of time. Like most of the time, there's a huge book full of, of what to do in order and you just follow, you just follow the list. And that's what they want us to do. Every now and then there's a no time situation, uh, where you just have to react and go back to the, you know, the things you learned when you were flying little planes like we just did. And those things are really, really simple. It's you need airspeed. You need enough air going over the wings to keep the wings working so you don't stall. And you don't fly into things. You know, it's just, it's just real simple. You, you don't pull up too hard. It's, it's nice, easy moves. If you were to stall, if you're running out of air, like you, you push the nose over and you get a little more airspeed. It's, it's all kind of like day one stuff. So if you were to get really, really scared in a situation that you had no time for, you're going to revert to whatever that stuff is you know. Right. Most of the planes I've flown as a, as a commercial pilot have had all that built in and worst case scenario. And there's a few times in like in a simulator and training when they start failing things and making all the bells and whistles go off and try to confuse us. Uh, when that happens, worst case scenario, I can always click everything off and just go back to like, it was a plane like the one we were just flying where I, you know, I just put the nose level with the horizon, make sure it's got enough power. The air is going over the wings. The airplane will fly. Right. They're great that way. Uh-huh. And off you go. Uh, what I've seen in this, and, and it's Airbus Boeing, they, they both have these systems in place. It, they, they put in something to keep you from making a stupid mistake. Um, and there have been issues with pilots making stupid mistakes, but they, they put in a system to prevent that, which is a great idea, but they either don't communicate it or sometimes people aren't trained well enough or they're just not aware, what have you. I think the question was, the next question was what happens on takeoff? So you, you basically, if I were going to start from the beginning of a takeoff roll, you're sitting at the end of the runway, mm-hmm. you get cleared, you, you put up the thrust, so you basically step on the gas. Yeah. They're jet engines, so they take a second to spool up, but you hear them get going faster and faster, and then you've got a lot of force coming out of the back of the plane. The plane slowly starts to roll, builds up speed. There's a speed at which you've got, you, you're right at the point where you've got about enough speed to take off. And they have a rotation speed. So since these are really big, heavy airplanes, you have to get at that speed before you lift the nose off the ground. Right? It's not quite enough to get off the ground yet, usually, mm-hmm. but it's it's enough to get the nose off the ground. So you start doing that, and then by the time the nose comes off the ground, you're going fast enough to take off, usually. So you you we call that out. We set it as a little bug. Mm-hmm. So it's you know set the thrust. You start. Whoever's flying watches outside. The person inside is watching the speed and the engines and all those things. Okay. And then looking for errors. And then as you uh, get to that speed, they say V1 rotate. V1 is basically I'm going so fast that at this point, if anything goes wrong, I'm going to take off. 
and like because otherwise I might not have enough runway to stop. Uh-huh. Right. So at that point, you take your hand off the gas pedal. It's a thrust lever, but you take your hand off the gas, and then shortly thereafter, the other guy says rotate. Mm-hmm. Then you then you pull you know gently back on the stick, and you and you raise up, and then you fly out. Depending on the plane, you fly it at some angle to the ground, and it's it's displayed on your on your monitor. And as you as you pull away from the earth. Uh, you're watching the airspeed to make sure it's always going in the right direction, and you're watching your altitude to make sure it's climbing. And then depending on the type of day and what you're doing, you either keep doing it by hand and just make sure those are all within range, or at some point you reach up and hit autopilot, and then it's going to do whatever you programmed it to do on the ground. And autopilots are dumb. They just they just do what we tell them to do. They're not a magical box that just flies the plane. Mm-hmm. Um, they follow a series of instructions that we gave them. So in that situation, you've got it set to fly a like a, a lateral course. So it's going to turn left or right, you know, at a certain point. And then sometimes you have them set to, to go up or down at a certain rate. Mm-hmm. So you hit the autopilot, it does its thing, off you go. While you're in that takeoff realm, you're mostly concerned about maintaining enough airspeed so that you, you know, so you don't stall and climbing fast enough so you don't hit anything. That's around you because the area right around the runway is, is protected. But, you know, if you're in New York, you can only go so far and you've got to get around buildings. Yes. So you do that and it's usually about a thousand feet. You climb kind of steeply uh, to get away from the ground. And then at about a thousand feet, uh, unless there's something really tall around you, you level off a little bit and you, you pull the power back a little bit and you start pulling up the flaps and all the things that help you get off the ground quickly. Uh, then you accelerate. And then you basically start climbing again. So the idea is you climb a little faster because that airspeed is just as important, you know, as an airspeed altitude trade-off. So as, as you do that, you take off, uh, you get to about, I don't know, two or three thousand feet is probably where I'd, I'd say your, your takeoff is kind of stopped. Uh-huh. And you're, you're starting to do just a, a first climb, first real climb. And how long does that take? Maybe? To get to two or three thousand feet? Yeah. Um, a minute or two. Okay. Depends on depends on what you're doing, but a couple minutes okay. or less. So you you get up to to that point. You keep climbing. You get to about ten thousand feet, and then you speed up a lot more. There's like a speed limit till ten thousand feet, and then off you go. Oh. So it's it's probably it's one of the easier parts of flying. Like cruise is the easiest, where you're sitting there. But but taking off is probably one of the easier things to do generally. But it's it's probably the most dangerous time period only because you're close to the ground, you're slow, and you're flying away from the runway. Whereas if you're coming into land, you're pointing at a runway, you know, you're still getting closer to the ground slow, but you've got, you know, you're, you're going in the right direction. There's a safe zone in front of you. Yeah, there's a safe yeah. zone in front of you. So barring completely running out of power, you can probably get to where you're going. Um, so for that reason only, it's it's the realm where you do have to be really cognizant because if something were to happen in that, that little time, You've got less time to react to it than you would anywhere else in the flight. It's the only reason. It's not otherwise inherently dangerous. It's just that you're in that that realm, a tight window, that tight window. Yeah. And if you're if you're a cruise, you know, and something happened at thirty six thousand feet, you're way above your. It's going to take, depending on the plan, if you're just going to glide down, I mean, you know, twenty thirty minutes before you you come down. So you've got time. Right. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So, uh, one thing I think that keeps coming up is kind of the 
the training. Uh-huh. I'm interested in kind of for you and the plane, you, the Airbus that you fly, how, how often you get these updates and how often you kind of need to relearn something or, or factor something new or if they change the software, change something else about how the plane kind of operates, what that's like and, you know, how that goes for you and whether that's how challenging that is. Cause I think that's at least a big part of the story here is kind sure. of whether or not they got the appropriate preparation to handle the, the plane, I guess it's not entirely clear or different people say different things about it. So I'm yeah, pretty curious I'm about your, your day to day sort of experience of that dynamic. I mean, I fly, I fly for one of the, the, the very large American airlines, uh, not American airlines, but one of the, one of the large one of the ones, ones, one of the okay. big ones yes. in the U S and, and I would say most U S air carriers are, we do a good job in training. The pilots are, are generally skilled and, you know, well recruited and, you know, they're finding the right people. Um, in general, our, if there was a software update that came out, you know, for the Airbus and they're, they do that periodically. Um, how often? I don't know. Because from a pilot's perspective, unless unless it affects how I operate the plane, uh-huh. I may or may not even know it. Like, oh, really? Yeah, like some of the software that comes out, a lot of time it's just like navigation database stuff. You know, uh-huh. something changes in the on the world. You know, they build a building, so they got to yeah. put that in there. Yeah. Okay. But they, they make changes, and they'll put out a they'll put out, when they do they'll put out a, a notice about it, and you know you read it. If it's significant, if it were something that were going to affect safety or you know or how the or the performance of the plane they it would be a much bigger deal and you'd have to you'd have to have some level of training for it i've never really had that happen i've never had had something come out with the plane that changed the characteristics of the plane so that i had to change the way i flew it uh-huh. i've just had memos that come out say for one reason or another we're changing a procedure you uh-huh. know and that happens like little minor stuff like monthly you know, there'll be something that comes out, but it'll be tiny. Or once or twice a year, there might be something that actually you have to stop and read and, and say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna change the way we do things. Mostly, we have these manuals that we follow, and when we go through initial training, you have to learn all the stuff in the manual, and they're they're pretty extensive, and they test you on it pretty hard. And and then from that point on, it's when those manuals change that something really matters, mm-hmm. right? And and so we might have a, a procedure on how we start an engine, for example. And they find out that, you know, engines are, are not lasting as long as they want them to. You know, the mechanics are having to, they're, they're seeing wear faster than they want. So instead of starting it one way, they start it another. Or, you know, all of a sudden I get a new procedure in the book and I have to figure this out. When that happens, they give us, they get, there'll be some sort of memo that goes out to the pilots, the, the manual will eventually be changed. You're then responsible on a particular, on whatever date and it goes into effect to do the new procedure. As people go through training, it's incorporated into the training. They make a big deal about it. You know, it's, they do a pretty good job of disseminating that. And that stuff usually is not that big a deal. It's, it's, it's a procedural change, but it's not, had you done it the old way, it's not unsafe. You know, it's just something they changed. What, what was going on here, I think, is they have a new version of an aircraft that that they added an entire system right that you know the 737 is a there's tons of them there are right. so many airlines flying them 
Uh, you know, it's, it's all summer airlines fly. So if you know how, and there's different versions. So if you know how to fly one seven thirty seven, you can pretty much fly the other seven thirty sevens. And depending on the airline, you might be able to fly everything they've got in the fleet. You know, uh-huh. so. So it's not that big a deal. If there's a differences, they're going to bring you in for training. They're going to say, here are the differences in the new plane versus the old plane. Here's what you need to learn. If there's any critical safety things, you have to memorize that, you know, and you go through. From what I've read of this, and again, not a 737 pilot, I don't work for any of these, for either of these companies that had the issues. But from what I've read about it, there's some question as to whether or not some of these folks even knew the system was in place, you know, uh-huh. and that's, that's been a super big concern from a pilot's perspective is if I had a plane, I don't need to know how to do everything on the plane. Like I don't need to know if the toilet system isn't functioning properly, how to fix the toilet system. I do however need to know that it's there and I need to know the basics. So we have to go through and learn stuff like that, like how the air flows through the plane to the passengers. Right. So, so when you're getting cool air, warm air, I, I have to know that system because if something were to happen, I at least need to understand that it's there and how it works so that I know whether it affects what's going on up front that, that's causing me a problem. So if they were to put something in that was a safety feature, great. If they didn't tell them how it worked and, and make sure that they were at least aware of it, that's a problem, you know, and, and that's, that's an issue. Um, whether or not that's the case, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's been released yet and I've seen conflicting reports. Right. Airbus has similar, uh, safety features to, to this one that they're discussing in Boeing that they think might have been an issue. They work a little differently. They work a lot differently, but the, the concept is, is similar. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the questions that they've had to work through is just whether or not they, they had an issue that they resolved with software. They had a hardware issue on the plane. They changed the design and they, it was a decent change. I mean, they put bigger engines on, they moved them forward on the wing. Yeah. And when they did that, it caused uh, a different weight and balance than the typical 737. Yeah. And I, well, we were talking about that. We were talking about weight and balance. Yeah, yeah. talking about a little weight and balance. Yeah. So and it, it, it affects how the plane flies and whether it tips up or down. And then also because they've got this, this engine for, more forward, when you put on the bottom of the wing, when you give an engine thrust, it, it creates a pitch moment on the plane, right? So if the if the engine was a little bit forward of that center of gravity of the plane and all of a sudden there's thrust on the bottom of it, it would have a tendency to pitch nose up. Yeah. Right. Okay. If you just added a bunch of power. Also, if as I've, it's like turning on an axis kind of, yeah, it's kind yeah. of, you know, or in some planes that have them on the tail, it's the opposite. Yeah. So you have to be cognizant of that when you're adding power that like, if you, if you want to go up, you know, on a plane that's got engines on the tail and you gun it, uh-huh. Um, you might actually get an initial nose down, yeah. even though you're yeah. giving more power to go up. So Got there's it. stuff like that pilots need to know, and they, yeah. they're going to know that on their plane. Yeah. Uh, the the engines on the 737 were, were bigger. They're flat on the bottom. They were moved forward. I believe that it, and again, I'm not an expert on, the, on that particular plane, but I believe that the combination of that, it basically created a lifting element. Yes. You know, forward of the plane that caused it to go, it could potentially cause it to have more of a nose up. Uh, pitch than than the old ones um, in in whatever in certain situations. So the company to to counteract that to 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 add a safety precaution against you know a plane that that inadvertently went nose up and potentially got into a stall. Right. Put a system in place to to push the nose over 
And, and that's not uncommon. I've flown numerous planes that had some version of a system like that. Mm-hmm. Um, not the same way Boeing did it, but a lot of planes have a, something that alerts you that you're about to, to not have enough airflow over the wings. Right. You know, you need to, you need to get a little more air over the wings just to, to stay flying. And that in a big jet, that usually is a, the yoke, the, the steering wheel that you're holding will shake. Uh-huh. Um, Airbus works differently, but like in, in the, Boeing's and, and other similar jets, you'll get a the yoke will shake mm-hmm. and it's can't miss it. It, it's it, it vibrates pretty noticeably, and that tells you, hey, you're getting close to that speed. And then the the panel you're looking at has a speed indicator, and it's it's a nice big red and white or some version of, of barber pole looking speed tape that gets closer and closer to your speed. Yeah, and if you get the speed you're looking at is getting close to that that red stripe, that candy cane looking stripe coming up at you. Then you know you're you're getting a little too slow. Yeah. Right. So all of those things allow a pilot to fix it bef- before there's any issue. Yeah. Um, if for some reason someone didn't and they did the wrong thing and pulled up when they should have pushed down or, or didn't give it enough gas or something, as a last resort, a lot of commercial aircraft have a a nose down like automated pitching system. We call it a pusher. Kind of unnerving to hear that. It is. It's actually. I'm glad it's there. Yeah. Because I mean, if if as long as you know how it works, if it happens, you know, it, it gives you a last resort. If something were to happen, the the plane pitches over for a second. It's just enough to keep disaster from occurring, and and then you can just fly away and no problem, right? It seems to me that this one was installed and it just didn't work quite the same as others as others did. And the question that they're trying to figure out is if is if these folks knew it was there, if if they were trained on how to override it. The way the one on Boeing works, as I understand it, is that as you get slow, and and by slow I mean if the angle of attack, which is uh, basically if the amount of air flowing over the wing starts to be a, not enough, if mm-hmm. it, if it's getting light. <laughs> if it's getting so the if the which might happen if you're pitched upward yeah so if you pitch upward it creates it creates a greater angle of attack it basically means that the the airflow over the wing is diminished yeah right if the airflow starts to diminish the plane wants to get more air flowing over the wings the fastest way to do that is to point the nose down yeah because if you're going towards the ground the air is going to go pretty fast over the wings usually and sometimes if you were to pull up real real quickly just just because you've changed the angle into the wind you lose some of that smooth air that's going over the wing. So they've, they came up with this, this software that tells the plane to, to trim yeah. the nose down. And the issue, that, as I understand it, is that it's trimming the, the horizontal stabilizer, which is basically this, the whole big horizontal part of the tail of the aircraft. So when you see that, you know, the, those two fins that stick out horizontally from the back of the tail. Yes. And then there's one that goes vertically. Yeah. On a little airplane like the one we just flew, that whole thing is rigid. It's it's stuck to the plane. It doesn't move. Right. And in the back of it are two little. I showed it to you. There's two. There's two little elevators that go up and down. So when we pull the stick up, push it forward and backward, that they mm-hmm. move. That makes the nose of the plane go up and down. On a big commercial airplane, the way you trim that, the way you you take away the need to put a lot of force on those elevators, as you because you're going very very fast when you're up in cruise. Yeah. Right. So. The way you trim it is the entire surface of that, those horizontal fins angle upwards or downwards. On the back of the plane. On the back of the plane. Yeah. So they angle a few degrees. I think it's like two and a half degrees. Uh-huh. You know, and 
And that little bit of angle takes away the need to use the elevator. So you, you get it to a, a neutral state. So the plane's uh-huh. like flying level at a neutral state is trimmed. Mm-hmm. As I understand what happened with the Boeing is the software tells that, that horizontal stabilizer to, to trim to make the nose go down. Uh-huh. Promise that's a really big surface. It's that whole tail. Yeah. On that tail are two much smaller little, little elevators, two little flaps type things that, that when you pull the stick towards you, you pull the yoke towards you, those go up. Yeah, they go up and they, they force the tail down, they force the nose up. All uh-huh. right. Or vice versa. Yes. So if you were to trim that tail, that, that horizontal stabilizer all the way, now you're fighting that really big surface with those really little controls oh. and it gets harder and harder. So initially, if that were to happen, you could, you could just go the other direction with the, with the elevators and it would, it would probably work, mm-hmm. right? But if it went full trim in the wrong direction, at that point, you might not be able to overcome it. Right. Because the, the big, the big lever for lack of, lack of a better sure. word is, 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 Fighting against you, and you're using a, the little a smaller level yeah. to try and make tiny to to make changes. Yeah. So knowing that that's a, an issue, because there, there have been issues with aircraft that have had there's a big screw sometimes that makes that horizontal stabilizer trim up and down that whole surface move. There have been issues in the past where that's broken, uh-huh. you know, and it's gone out of control and just started trimming without being told to do so. And the way they train pilots is to there's different aircraft have different systems to stop that. So you can take the electricity away from it. You can, you know, you, you can figure out a way to make it stop trimming so that all you have is the controls that, that you're working instead of what it's trying to automatically do. Mm-hmm. Um, also in Boeing, there's these big wheels. They're about bigger than a pie plate that are on either side of the, the center console. Mm-hmm. So either pilot can reach them. And they're obvious. They're black and white stripes. So you see, if they're turning out of the corner of your eye, you should see them turning, and they make sound. And, uh-huh. you, know, you can tell it's happening. So if, if that thing is moving, those are spinning. Oh, okay. Right, and they spin all the time. They're supposed to. They're trimming. Yeah. But if they were to go out of control, like if they just started spinning, and you hear this going nuts, and you look down, and you see stripes flying. Yeah, yeah. You know something's wrong, and you're and you're trained for that. And so you reach down, you do the things you're trained to do to stop that from happening. Right. This is using that same system to, to trim the plane. So I don't know if these folks didn't know that didn't compute that the problem that was going on was that the stabilizer was running away, that this, uh-huh. this thing was happening and they didn't stop it in time. What I read was that the, the flights prior to the crash on the Lion Air, I think it was the Lion Air, one of them, where they had had a problem and then, and then fixed it and then it crashed the next day. Yeah. I think that's what they did was they basically treated it as a, as a stabilizer runaway and it fixed it. But, but then they went and flew it again, you know, and they crash shortly thereafter. Whereas man, if that happened, if that were to happen on an aircraft I flew in this country, that plane wouldn't be going anywhere until they figured that out. That's, that's Uh, a big, big deal. uh Uh-huh. Right. And so if you saw it happen once, you, you just stop it and you can stop it. If you were trained for it, it's a memory item for the pilots that fly that plane. If that starts to run away, you do it. Now that MCAS system yeah. isn't isn't exactly that, but it's using it's a, it's a similar issue, right? Right. It's, the stabilizer is going where you don't want it to go for some yes. reason because it's getting bad inputs. So the, the plane thought it was stalling when it wasn't, and so it tried to stop the stall, 
which you point downward to so, do that. So it, tri- it trimmed to put yeah. the nose down. The pilots tried to fight that nose down, but eventually lost the battle to that stabilizer that was going the wrong way. Right. So you can see how training could have fixed it, you know, potentially. Right. Again, we will see what comes out, but that might have been a thing. I personally would, if, if that system was in there and they didn't know about it, man, that's a big deal. Right. Because uh-huh. then you're trying to figure out what, you got all kinds of things going on with the plane at the same time and you're trying to figure out what, what and, to correct. And you're, you have very limited amount of time to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, I mean, it's speculation, but I, I don't know. To me, I would just want to know everything on the plane. I, I, we go out of our way to make sure that any, any changes, you know, we, we study for and we prep for and we train for. And, and in a worst case scenario, you can turn stuff off. Yeah. And just fly it like, like a little plane and it flies just fine. Right. Um, Airbus has had similar issues with some of their stuff in the past. And, you know, but I haven't heard of any in a long, long time. In general, they're all really safe planes to fly. Uh huh. So, I don't know if that answers your question. Probably too much. No, I think that's good. That's the kind of, you know, I mean, we only know what we know now, but I think it helps to kind of understand the role. The, the hardware and software are meaningful components, sort of regardless. So, like, the pilot has responsibility, but I think also based on what you described, you know, the they both need to work together. The pilot needs to work together and the machine needs to work together. And and so it's I think we got, you know, early on after the crash, there was a lot of, well, the pilots, you know, should have done we we believe the pilots should have done something differently and or they and then other people are saying, you know, well Boeing should have provided certain features or there were upsell options that they should have just provided or, or, you know, something seems to have gone wrong with the pl- these planes and whether that's a systematic problem that was part of Boeing's process or whether it was sort of, we don't know, but what I'm getting from this is that, you know, these are on the one hand, the mechanics of flying is like relatively straightforward, but these are complex systems. You've introduced a lot of, Fail-safe measures, some of them are automatic and some of them are human-driven, but either way, there's this fundamental thing of the human has to work with the machine to make it all go. So it's, yeah. so it's going to be rare where the, the machine is entirely at fault or the person is entirely at fault. Yeah. Most of the ones I've seen recently, like the, there was an Airbus, the, the last Air, Airbus one I studied, I don't know what, I don't, I don't know everyone that has an issue, but there was a the really awful flight from Rio uh, on Air France quite some time ago. Mm-hmm. And it was, Airbus took off and it had a sensor failure. And it was very similar, kind of what happened, but it, it ended up being a pilot-induced thing because the pilot was getting bad information from the plane. Uh-huh. And the plane realized that it was getting bad information and turned off some of the protections. And the, and the pilot uh, reacted and reacted poorly for a long time and multiple mm-hmm. pilots didn't interpret the information quickly enough and it led to disaster. Yeah. We study that stuff. You yeah. know, like I, I read an entire book on that. Like, it, like that particular thing could not happen to me. You know, that's dangerous to say, but like it, 
but but like I, I understand it and I know how to turn off those systems and I you know we we train and train and train. I think most of these systems are designed as safety precautions against human error, mm-hmm. right? And the, then the issue becomes now the machine is, is taking over and you don't know who's flying the plane, whether you are or the machine right. You don't know whether the autopilot's flying it or this MCAS system is flying it. You don't oh. know whether, you know, is, is your input working? Is this, is because they were getting bad information. The sensors were bad. Yeah. But best I could tell, these pilots all would have been fine just saying, turn it all off. And I'll look outside and just, you know, keep the nose above the horizon. Look at the horizon. Yeah, yeah, it's not hard. Yeah. So if there if there is or was an issue where they couldn't do that, then I would be concerned. Right. Um, I would imagine that if that's the case, that has been quickly fixed with some version of software update or, or some right. change. And but but given the profile of this and and you know all the articles where they came out talking about the FAA and Boeing and, and yeah. giving them some responsibility for their own testing. And, you know, I don't see the FAA being quick to say, okay, cool. Software fix is good. You're back in business. I, they're right. they're going to dot every I. And so it might take a second, but I, I would imagine if there is some issue and even if it turns out that there wasn't, that that wasn't the issue, Boeing's going to go back and make sure that, that they've, fixed or they've they've gone out of their way to make sure that, that those perceptions cannot be correct. Right. Uh, that that the plane's not going to take over in a way that can't be overridden. Right. Yeah. So I wouldn't be worried about it. I mean if they pull it back if, if I flew that plane and they put it out tomorrow, as long as they showed me everything that was in it, I'd be fine flying it. Uh-huh. Well that that brings me to my sort of I think the one other question that you can help us with is you know there I think Indonesia has has grounded these planes. I don't know if they've put them back in, I think, but throughout the world there's sort of governments are grounding the planes right. and there's some pressure on Boeing now, which did apologize this past week in some measure for what happened, took it some additional responsibility. There was a press release and then there's pressure on Boeing now to also ground all of these planes. And so what I wanted to hear from you is like, say that your Airbus plane is grounded. Like what, what's the impact there? Like what happens? Um, personally, it means I get to go on vacation. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> but, but what's the impact to, I mean, other than time off until they fix it, you know, the, the pilots, the way we're trained and the way it works in American uh, carriers is that you're you're trained on a particular type of aircraft. And so if I flew, for example, if I flew an Airbus 320 for 20 years and then one day changed planes and I went and flew a Boeing 737, as soon as I start training for that Boeing 737, even though I'm I've got the licenses and I'm legal to fly that Airbus, once I start training on the new new plane, my company won't let me fly an Airbus. I would have to go through training again because the the systems are complex enough that they won't they don't want you mixing thoughts of what to do in one airplane versus right. another. Okay. Airplane. Yeah. Right. So as a safety precaution, that's the rule. Like if you change planes, you know, and the ones that are really similar. Like I fly three different types of Airbuses that are all remarkably similar. So it it doesn't matter. Like right. I can just 
make minor difference, minor tweaks for each one, and it's fun. But if you were to make a big change, it, it you, you don't fly the other one anymore. So if I were on an airplane where suddenly I couldn't fly anymore, if it was 737 MAX and I was legal to fly all the other 737s, it probably wouldn't affect me much at all uh-huh. because the company would just put me on the other 737s and I'd keep flying, right? Right. Um, and now they've got fewer planes, so there's more pilots per plane, so I probably get more days off. You know, maybe, I don't know. Uh-huh. Maybe they just fly more. If it were something where that, like if they, if they grounded the Airbus fleet that I'm on and it was the whole fleet, I would be off until they fixed it. And, and then when they fixed it, there would almost certainly be some level of training that I would have to go through to, to understand what they did and how. And once we were tested on that and they made sure everybody was up to speed, then it would be back to business as normal. I will tell you anytime something like this happens, the people in my industry very like it becomes the discussion in every van to the hotel at the end of the day. Uh-huh. You know, and we, we talk about, you know, if I'm in the van with the guys that fly the seven thirty sevens, we talk about it and they give their commentary and everybody's got an opinion. Yeah. Uh, but it's the the upshot is we want to learn and we want to know how not to let something like that happen because you know, we'd like to go home for dinner. Right. Right. So, so we, we study and, and we figure it out and the planes are becoming more and more automated. And the flip side of this is, you know, it's always, you always get a lot of attention when a crash, you know, people die it's a big deal. Um, it makes the news, but the reasons these types of, incidents are happening is because they've curbed, they've protected against so many possible things that could happen that every once in a while, one of the systems goes wrong. Yeah. Right. But it's rare. Yeah. Like it's really, really rare. And if you look at how many flights occur with no issues whatsoever, it's, it's, I, I would not be, well, I don't want to say, but I'm like over the course of my career, I'm hoping that I make it through a whole career and pilots are still relevant by the end of it. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. And it's just in the in the interim that automation is going to get better and better and better, and they're going to figure out ways to to have fail safes. You know, and I'll I'll at some point probably switch from being the person that's that's physically moving the plane from one place to another to the fail safe. Uh You know, should something go wrong, that would be boring for me. So I hope that doesn't happen soon. You can go up in the little plane and pull some more. Right. So we'll go up in the little plane and fly around. Okay, Matt. Thanks a lot. No problem. It was a great conversation. No problem. I, I tend to talk it. a lot. So. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's really wonderful. I um, look forward to seeing how it's received. So right. thank you. Cool. All right. Bye. Thanks for listening to Behind the Idea. That wraps up our Boeing coverage for now. Though if you want to hear more, or if you ever want to request a topic, email us at btipod at seekingalpha.com. We're here to hear from you. We're talking about a favorite FinTwit battleground next week, so watch out for that. Leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts if you have the chance. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Thanks for listening, and see you next week on Behind the Idea.